Hello, we are the Manic Street Speakers, two friends discussing the best band in the world like we're in a pub, and inviting you to join us. You don't even need to buy us a pint when they reopen. Coming up, we talk to journalist and blogger Jimmy Arundel about Gold Against the Soul reissue, take a look at the new Kieran Evans film Pieces of Sleep, and get kinky with some red rubber. But first, let me introduce you to a person who, as a toddler, had a rag doll named Boy George who, believe it or not, she used to sing Karma Chameleon to. That sounds like ragdoll futility to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Please welcome Emma. Hello, hello. I, it Genuinely, I was apparently about um, between a year and 18 months old and I used to go, Karma, 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 Chameleon. <laughs> Uh, did you go karma comedian chameleon or karma karma but i genuinely you know i was a baby i probably couldn't pronounce it brilliantly <laughs> i think it's probably time i did your intro <laughs> your host of this fabulous podcast the person who said to me several months ago if not over a year ago hey emma i've had this idea for a podcast you fancy being involved and probably regrets the fact that i said yes he remains the only guy i have ever hung out with ed tudor pole with and if you're very lucky he might tell you about it it's mikey no we were talking before we start recording about the ed tudor pole thing and it was about 2011 wasn't it and we we went to see i had no idea apart from the guy who presented the crystal maze that's all i knew and people were like let's go to see him swords of a thousand men i think that's the only song to this day i actually know yes and we saw him at the cavern in exeter um we ended up in his changing room which was a bit weird well the reason for that is because it was a gig that one of our mutual friends at the time actually organised. And so I spent my day that afternoon setting up his rider in his dressing room. And what was his rider? I genuinely can't remember. <laughs> there was a particular brand of crisp. <laughs> was it crystals? No, I wish it had been. And I really wish when we entered, he'd been like, you're entering the medieval zone. <laughs> but he did not. But he does talk like that, doesn't he? He's he's very, hello, welcome. But hang on, we need to backtrack. It was a particular ba- brand of cream. Crisp. <laughs> not not anusol. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes well you know his crystal dome does need that um god i need to not (laughs) it was very strange i have never put on a gig before i have never been somebody who has to be backstage set up a dressing room go out we had to go out shopping with a list of stuff that was on his rider there was a particular drink and there was a particular crisp and i think he wanted particular fruit as well so we had to go to a supermarket and be like right let's get ed tudor rider it was a very strange time in my life it was very strange and also how many people actually turned up at the gig because i remember it being quite empty <laughs> yeah there were about 30 people there yeah <laughs> and then and then we ended up in the premier inn with him at the bar we we did end up in the premiere in with him and it was all very strange 
<laughs> feel like that's probably as far as we should go with that story. <laughs> yeah, I just want to point out, at no point did I have any sexual relations with that Jude Paul. <laughs> because I just realised the way I said that probably sounds like I'm sitting on a story. I'm not. You left Ed's pole alone. I did. I never. I never chewed a pole. <laughs> what an excellent start to this podcast. Hello, I'm Ed, and this is the Crystal Maze, a hitherto unparalleled excursion through history, time, and space, where I'll act as guide to six stout-hearted members of the human race. Well, they'll need to be stout-hearted, if not ingenious, if not adroit, as they attempt, by using their intelligence and common sense, which are not always the same thing, to seize crystals from the maze. They'll be restricted only by time and their own limitations. Before we get into the news, um, I've got a bit more feedback about postcards from a young man in terms of the last episode. And I think this perfectly defines how split fans are on this album. I've got a comment from Dave Roberts who says, Unfashionable opinion, definitely one of my favourite, top three favourite Manix albums. All three of them seemed on top of their games and I got the impression that they were having fun and, and allowing themselves to enjoy the process which comes through in the music. I just really enjoy listening to this album, regardless of whether people think it's edgy or not. As we get older, sometimes it's nice to throw off the more earnest and serious affectations of our youth and just enjoy the good things in the world at that moment. But then, Baz, Baz, postcards from a young man is painfully bland and forgettable, overproduced to a high, to a high heaven, especially in the cases of auto-intoxication and balconies. Golden Platitudes is objectively the worst thing they have ever recorded. <laughs> can I just can I just say vindicated? It's the only album I don't ever revisit. Far too polished and far too bland. Wow. I mean, obviously, I disagree with that review. Um, but yeah, that that's an that's an excellent example of how polarizing that album is. Uh, one more, Heather. It's the only album I don't even own. I've tried listening to it since, and it's like a different band that I don't even know. This is the this is the killer line. I've erased it from Manix history. Oh no! I mean that's savage. That's I mean I couldn't do that because that's you know my tattoo lyric is I, I, if there was no postcards from a young man. They would not be my tattoo lyric and therefore, well, I'd, I'd have an empty back. <laughs> well, it'd be like Back to the Future. It would fade. It would. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, oh, now I want to watch Back to the Future. I've now got an image of the Mannix covering The Power of Love. <gasps> That's the power of love. Do you know what? I reckon they could do that. Because who, who expected them to do Feels Like Heaven and for it to be so freaking good. I love their version of Feels Like Heaven. I love the original as, as well, but yeah. James could definitely do Johnny Be Good. Oh, yes. I would, I would absolutely love to hear him do that. 
Yeah, sorry, we've gone slightly off subject. <laughs> Let's go to the news. Okay, with unnerving predictability, the show at Halifax Pete's Hall has been postponed to Sunday 27th of June 2021. Sad times. I know quite a few people who had tickets for that, so that is a shame. Yeah, but it's it's a weird thing because I was talking to someone at work the other day and they were saying about, oh, the two metre social distancing rule is going to change, so that means we're going to go to gigs again soon. But I don't think that's true because what they'll do, I think, is they'll limit the amount of mass gatherings, how much you can, how much you can have in a mass gathering. They might, they might say 20, 30, 50 people, but it's not going to be a lot, is it? Well, actually, Embrace have announced, well, there's a, as part of a, I can't remember what the company's called, but a drive-through, basically like watching a gig, like a, you're at the cinema. See, I'd be well up for that. I'm not sure about the idea because I was interested in going because I was a massive Embrace fan when I was a teenager. But the problem is, as things stand, we can't book accommodation and then we'd, we'd have to sleep in the car. At first, at first I was excited by the thought, then I thought, actually, are we just sitting in the car? You're going to, you're going to be tilting your head out the car, side of the car to watch a band and there's not going to be much of an atmosphere it might be an experience but Mm. my my brain i think my brain was like yeah i'll just take the top down (laughs) i don't have a soft top car (laughs) that would be an issue just get a chainsaw (laughs) i feel like the finance company (laughs) that own my car would not appreciate that but um yeah i mean i i've been to a when i went to america i went to a drive-in cinema and that was amazing and it was such an experience to be in America and go to a drive-in movie but now I'm thinking about it I don't know because part of the atmosphere of a gig is like you know you queue to get to the front would you have a traffic jam of course that's the queue for the barrier to spark in front of the barrier I don't know exactly do you have a select car park space or is it first come first serve yeah it's and if you're right at the back I mean oh yeah I've I'm reassessing my opinion on this I'm not sure anymore how I feel that's how I felt at first I was a bit like oh that'd be something to do a gig to go to over the summer but as soon as you start analyzing it you go "Mm." yeah are you allowed I mean I suppose are you allowed to stand out of the car I guess it depends how far apart the spaces are yeah because because that's the other thing I would want to dance I'd want to you know, wave my hands in the air like I just don't care. As a round of applause, will people toot their horns? That seems like the obvious thing to do, but at the same time, God, that'll be annoying. <laughs> Especially if you live nearby and you're not attending, just, oh my God. It would sound like a heckle. That's fucking shit, mate. Fucking shit. It really would, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I need to mull on this for a while. The, yeah, the way I view it, if I saw the Mannix in that situation, I don't think I'd find that enjoyable. For the Mannix, I would always queue and try and get the barrier. So part of me is thinking, well, if I could park quite near the stage, 
I'd probably be all right with that as long as I got a decent view. But I don't, I don't know. You've got a car, you could ram the barrier. <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter, you've already cut the fucking roof off. This is true. By this point, you know, <laughs> who cares? But then you see, the trouble is, you cut the roof off, you're going to be bloody cold when you're sleeping in your car. That's true. I didn't think this through, did I? Damn. Back to the drawing board. <laughs> Last bit of news. Um, the anchoress, who is obviously a big part of recent Manic's history, she has done a rather beautiful cover of small black flowers that grow in the sky. Uh, have you heard it? I haven't yet. I keep meaning to, to play it and I haven't. It's available to buy on her SoundCloud. Um, I would recommend it. It's blooming awesome. She is amazing. I do really like her. She's one of those people that just fits that manic style, doesn't she? Just, she just came into the world and it just seemed quite natural. Okay, that is the news. Now it's time for my chat with music journalist Jimmy Arundel as we discuss the Gold Against the Soul reissue. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Not at all, not a problem. Um, you're, I got, you got my attention basically by your review of the Gold Against the Soul uh, reissue. And uh, it got a lot of uh, comments and a lot of approval. <laughs> Which is always quite a hard thing to get from uh, Manix. <laughs> this, is, this is true. I've done three episodes of a podcast and I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> But how is it? How is it in your line of work at the moment? Because we were just talking off air in terms of the things you do. You're a freelance journalist, and how is how is that going in terms of being a promoter? And and how is that all going in terms of this lockdown and nothing being on essentially? Well, okay. I mean, like at the moment, I mean to be honest with you, it's trying to make something out of nothing. Um, you might have noticed that there's quite a few magazines that are doing articles there. It's contacting people and saying, what are your top three favourite albums? Um, and so there's a lot that's, um, it's just trying to keep this big machine going when it can't actually do it. So, um, you know, bands can't meet up and practice and record. Um, they can't even play live uh, together uh, unless they're at least two metres apart. And so uh, a lot of people are trying to work out how that's going to do. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of um, streaming gigs and people are just trying to work out if that's going to be the future and how long that's going to be going on. But in terms of uh, articles and stuff like that, um, it's the thing that I tend to focus on is new bands and new artists and people that are coming through and just that, that exciting thing of uh, the first flourish of somebody doing something for the first time you know you know, i'm sure you've noticed that most bands that very often their first album's the best one then everything's a slight slide since then mm. but at the moment i mean there's absolutely zero ways that a band can 
get on a stage at the moment, that they can break through, that they can even meet up. I mean, like the independent venues are closing. Um, I expect we're going to get a lot of acoustic EPs recorded on. Oh, please, no more. No, we've already got Ed Sheeran. <laughs> oh God, yeah. So, uh, well, expect uh, his dark shadow to be lingering over music for the next. <laughs> So what got you into music journalism initially and into the into the field of music? Oh, um, I guess, the, I mean, ironically, it was uh, politics first. Um, I had never really done any journalism or anything like that, and I got thrown in at the deep end during the, uh, the Corbyn, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, when he was first uh, bidding for the Labour uh, leadership. Uh, there's a local newspaper in Nottingham. I'm, I'm from Hull originally, but lived down in Nottingham. And um, they um, they got an interview with Jeremy Corbyn, and they um, didn't really know what to do with it or who to get to do it. And I know the editor, and I've had a like a past in political activism and things like that. And they wanted somebody who'd be unafraid to actually challenge uh, Corbyn, and also who, you know, without sounding arrogant, knew what they were talking about. And uh, so um, I was meant to meet him, and uh, he said to me. Uh, that basically, um, look, I, I appreciate that we've got this interview and it's meant to be a one-on-one, -on -one, but outside I've got the BBC, Sky, ITN, and I'll do a deal with you. I'll ask, I'll answer every single of your questions if we can do this outside and in public. So I've never... I've oh, wow. Very, yeah, I've done very little in the way of journalism before, and suddenly I found myself interviewing who could have been potentially the Prime Minister and seeing that my questions, this was the frustrating thing, the questions that I asked, his answers were being used on Sky and BBC and ITN. They just cut me out and then put their own editorial on it. So, yeah, I did that. And um, then um, the uh, just basically got a taste for it. And obviously, you know, music seemed like a, an easier way in. And so, yeah, just started writing freelance. And I, I was going to wonder how you got into the Mannix, but maybe the politics side is part of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, I'm sure, like, uh, as it's been said on uh, your previous podcasts, and uh, I'm sure with many, many of the Mannix fans, that when you fall in love with uh, a band like them, or particularly them, because there isn't any really peers that they have, um, that there is a big political edge to them, and that you need, it's that need in you that you wanted something more from a band that nobody else could give, and only they did. And, I mean, like, sort of looking at my past, like, it was Nirvana was the big thing that I first got into, you know, when, when uh, Nevermind came out. The thing about Nevermind is that sounded exactly like an album should sound to me. It really roared, it really had that power to it, and it sounded fresh and, and alive. But at the same time, I mean, I'd, I'd never called Kirk been done by any kind of measure, but it, it wasn't really satisfying a lot of those... Uh, a lot of those things that just needed to be talked about or needed to be explored or certainly I felt needed to be and um, so like then started looking you know like definitely had a taste of uh, punk and uh, so I started looking at the first wave of punk and uh, went digging through my dad's records and uh, started uh, like listening to the Sex Pistols and obviously the Sex Pistols again very similar to the violin had that energy but the politics it, it wasn't really that clever it was it was talking about politics without really seeming to understand it it's just nihilistic for sure which is great it's fantastic it's exciting but it wasn't really there and almost then, like, almost like broad strokes but without without going into the detail of it 
which there's nothing wrong with because when you get bands that are literally telling you exactly what to do then straight away you can call them up on it and say do you know what that that's wrong i mean like i, I fucking love idols i love them to pieces like good mates as well but they've got this lyric the best way to score is to scare a tory is to read and get yeah. rich it's like that's not the best fucking way or to actually <laughs> just become one of them yeah, so, yeah. I, I don't like so there's things like that but then like when i started listening to the clash that were a bit more spot on with the politics the weird thing about them was that i was surprised at how quiet and tinny it sounded but it sounded musically really quite dated and obviously this was like, you know, like, uh, so I'm listening to them in like, what, 1995, 1996, uh, probably a bit earlier as well. And it, it, it was my parents' generation. And so I just needed something that had that, that power and that live, that full, fresh sound that sort of Nirvana and Sex Pistols had, but with that IQ of, uh, of Josh Drummer and The Clash. But also, you know, like something that tapped into literature, something that was just dangerous for our generation. And, absolutely i totally agree which is the weird thing is about gold against the soul it, it kind of went against everything they'd set themselves up to be from the debut because they stopped talking bar bar i guess the title track they stopped talking about the politics they their image changed drastically they were and i wasn't a fan at the time but around the around the time i know that fans suddenly went well what's this who what are you doing and some fans didn't like that change of direction so i mean like they, they've made a career out of that i mean like i'm sure a few of us uh were like what the fuck's going on when lifeblood came out or you know what's going on with their postcards or uh i mean even with the holy bible i'm sure a lot of people were like oh hang on you know like what, what's going on here um you know, it's it's good. It's good that rather than like what I said before, is that very often with uh, bands when they uh, when they first start out, they do one fantastic album and then everything else is sort of depreciated return. And it's usually because they're just trying to copy exactly what they did the mm. first time round. And um, Gold Against the Soul doesn't do that. If anything, it takes the best bits sonically. I mean, like uh, you know, a lot of um, tracks like Drug Drug Druggy or Yourself. Uh, not a million miles away from like songs like Crucifix Kiss. They kind of like, do you know what I mean? They've they've they've, um, they've taken that hard edge and perfected it a little bit more. And uh, yeah, they've made uh, they made it lift off the off the ground a bit more because I f- I feel like with Generation Terrorists, the the punk album is there, but it's too wrapped up in quite soft eighties production. Yeah, that doesn't help. But also, I mean, like, um, what I love about it as well is that they tried a lot with that album. I mean, like, who the hell else at the time was, like, trying to get uh, Public Enemy in there mm-hmm. and just, like, doing, okay, we're going to just have, like, a rap song in there and, and use their kind of way of just sampling. And, um, you know, like, it, it, it was a, a collage rather than a fully formed album. Whereas Gold Against the Soul, it sounds like they definitely had an idea of how the full album should sound by the end of it. And you can tell that by the demos. I mean, even like the uh, the original sort of uh, demos, like the uh, the ones that were at the uh, Impact Studios and stuff like that, they, they, they're not that much different to what finally came out in the end. Mm. Whereas Generation Terrorists, like they, they were literally working it out as they went along. Sean was working out how to bloody program beats yeah. as they were recording the album, you know? Yeah, that's the that's the strange thing about the demos. In a way, I was I know they've released demos of the last few albums with the album, 
and they've been quite advanced and it, because I guess these were old and they you know Nick had found them I I was, think I was expecting them to be vastly different but there's they're generally they're not they're not that different apart from where there's usually an orchestra that you know that the keyboard is more prominent there's not a lot of difference really there's really not a lot of difference apart from uh, Roses in the Hospital where uh, is it the House in the Woods demo that's got that it's got those real flourishes of uh, big guitar solos that I'm really really glad that they pruned down that's strange yeah right after the chorus isn't it yeah I think they've been touring with Bon Jovi at the time (laughs) I think his shadow looms over that one as well I'd say the biggest thing of interest in the demos is um, Life Becoming a Landslide because there's hints of different lyrics at the start. I think there's some more during the middle of it. And I've got it written down here. Bodies in line, bodies in mortuary, bodies in auc- on auction, cattling apertoire. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I... hey, top 20 hit, everyone. <laughs> It's quite bleak as it is, and then then they, you know, they could have been even bleaker. Well, I mean, like there was something. I, I, one of the times I was actually speaking to James, that I was saying to him, it's one of the reasons why, or one of the times when your band's at its best. It's not when you are like chasing, the, uh, like what you think should be done. It's when you literally plant a flag in the sand and say, "No, you guys come to us. This is who we are. We're not chasing you. We expect you to rise to us." Absolutely. Uh, and that's one of those songs. I mean, with those initial lyrics, I mean, like, I think that says a lot about their um, their writing process. That obviously, back then with Richie as well, but they've always done lyrics first. And they they they've thought of a subject, they tried to tackle it, they've written those lyrics, and then like they they tend to write way more than actually goes into the song. And it's part of James's skill that actually it's it's whittling it down to well, what is the bare bones of the song not necessarily the bare bones but what what how do i get the most impact with uh, with what i'm given and how can i make it the most sense because if when you look at the sleeve notes for journal for plague lovers and all those all those words that richie left them i think there's one song that's sheets and sheets long and he's compacted it into something and that yeah. might you know that must be such hard work i think 
yeah, William's last words wasn't that, yeah. like pages and pages long, and it was it was it was a story basically. But I mean, he was thinking about doing a concept album, and I am kind of gutted that it didn't end up being Pantera meets Sweet <laughs> I would have put that. Uh, just like James screaming. Well, yeah, he, he is a man who can scream particularly well. <laughs> it's interesting you said um, when they went in to record Gold Against the Soul, rather than the debut, they had a set idea of what they wanted to do. Because from my impressions, what I get from the band is over the years, they have kind of disowned this album, which is a, a surprise that, that they brought out this reissue at all. But... I think that they felt they were playing it safe at the time. Yeah, I, I definitely think that you've got something uh, there that it was playing it safe, but at the same time, it's what they thought was playing it safe, and I think that they did get sidelined by the advent of grunge and this new kind of stripped-down sound which they weren't necessarily expecting. I also think that it's maybe a product of their uh, upbringing. You know, when uh, you come from like some small town. And you've probably never had access to, you know, the studio that costs £1,500 a day. And someone says, do you want it? And you're like, yeah, sure, go for it. Where am I going to get to do this again? You know, why not? Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to remember this. They're changing ideas so quickly, so early on in their career and doing it so quickly from Generation Terrorist, Gold is Getting So Holy Bible. That's three albums. That's three albums in three years. And yeah. they're all wildly different albums. So, you know, it's the, I guess it's the naivety of youth. They're just thinking, we can do this. And I think that they did do it. I think that a lot of um, their kind of willingness or need or feeling the need to put the, some distance to, uh, towards it, I think was down to the public reaction. I mean, like, they've always been quite open uh, when they've said that, their fans' reaction and the uh, the music press does mean something to them. You know, they've never said that they want to be just some obscure art band that you know is out in the wilderness and does nothing. They've always been about mass communication, and uh, so when they've gone to all this work, all this effort, all this money, and uh, when I mean it, it got to number eight, I think in the charts, it was no, it was never a failure. But I think the sort of the, the standards that they had set themselves, that they were going to be this epoch-changing, generation-defining band, and this second album hadn't done that. I think, I mean, is it, is it necessarily a bad attitude to rip it up and start again? I mean, that attitude is what created the Holy Bible, which is certainly my favourite album, and it's definitely a lot of other people's mm. too. Um, what is, where, do you, where would you rank Gold Against Soul in terms of their discography then? Well, there's 13 albums to do that. Yeah. Probably, so, uh, and I'm not going to do that exactly. But I mean, you know, I've, I've always been like, you know, the, the first four are probably, um, the first four are always going to mean the most to me. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, Holy Bible's going to be absolute favourite. Um, but I think it's pretty... You know, in, in those first four, it's, it's pretty my third. Yeah, if it, I was a bit dubious when they announced the reissue because the band have never been that favourable towards it. Generally, fans haven't. I don't think fans have actively disliked it, say, like at, at times Lifeblood or Postcards, but it's never been at the top of the fans' lists either. So when this was announced, I was a bit lukewarm about it, this reissue. Well, 
it depends on which fans you ask. Because yeah. I know a lot of people who... I mean, the great thing about the Manics is that they've got almost this... If you want to reduce them to caricatures, they've almost got this cartoonish appeal. You know, you've got, like, Richie with his nihilism and his intense frosty intellect. You've got Nicky with his sensitivities, not to say that any of the others aren't. But, you know, if you want to boil it down to this kind of, like, you know, ultra-sensitivity that you can wrap yourself up with and sort of, you know, Sean with his sort of tech kind of head. And, uh, but then you've got James, who is this, you know, this guitar hero. And this is definitely the album of those big lead guitars, those big chunking riffs. And so I know a lot of people who really about the Manics because of James's guitaring mm. this is their favourite album and so for them this is that uh, that that it's the reissue that they've always been praying for and they finally got it and they've certainly not been disappointed in my opinion no I can say is is it firstly is it worth the money and secondly is it is it worth coming out at all in, in, in the sense of putting that part of the Manics history to the forefront and saying you know, because you got to remember, there were some brilliant B-sides from that time as well. And it's nice to go, oh, that was from that time. Yeah, oh God, yeah. I mean, um, Us Against You was one of those B-sides that, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I hadn't quite forgotten about it, but it's not something... It, it was good to dust that off because some of my absolute favourite Manic songs are those B-sides that just absolutely just tear everything apart i love star lover i love sora 16 yeah. and us against you is, is also one of those songs where it, it just smacks you in the face and demands your attention and i love it and patrick bateman as, as well it's i half the time i love it and half the time i'm just l listening to it laughing my head off well, the thing is i mean like i first heard that song when um like i, I think it was the uh the Lattresessa, um the Japanese version of it, like HMV suddenly got flooded full of them and uh, managed to pick up one and start like listen to uh, listen to that. And I, I didn't, this was probably around 996 I heard it for the first time and I had, I'd never heard of it. So when I listened to it, I had zero expectations and I absolutely loved it. It was just this massive, offensive, ridiculous song that went on forever, which referenced... Uh, Brace and Ellis's nastiest uh, novel <laughs> really, really, really sunk into uh, just how. Well, to be honest with you, it didn't sink into as bleak as it could be because if you ever read that novel, it's got some fairly disturbing stories. But I just, as a teenager, there was something about you know, I thought God of the Ass that yeah. was good enough. To, it wound up my parents, so that was good enough. Of course, it did. Yeah, I, I just, just that line. Or even though I know it's coming, I, it always takes me by surprise. It's just like, oh my God, they got away with that. And I think that that is one of the things that, I think maybe that song, because I believe that they wrote that first. I think that was, because I've, I've seen interviews where they say, oh, we've got this new song, it's going to be on the next album. And I think that they think too much about that B-side rather than the album. So when they want this sort of distance from it, it's really, I think, they've, they've, they've decided that the rest of the album's like that. It's not. Like, the rest of the album's very, very sensitive. I mean, you know, Life Becoming a Landslide is, is, is one of the most poignant, you know, like, songs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a more personal album, isn't it? Less political, more personal. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's the thing, that it's surprising because often people, um, the personal chimes more with people very often. Um, so... Politics, obviously, by its very nature, when it's discussing it, is divisive. 
And so if you don't agree with somebody, then you're just not going to enjoy that album. Although it does surprise me that I keep on getting more and more people adding me on social media, like who are Manix fans and who are quite right wing, which I find absolutely bizarre. Like uh, a lot of posts that I'm like, and then, you know, like their profile picture will be a Manix uh, related thing. And uh, they'll be uh, putting some stuff, which is like, do you, do you actually listen to that band I, I find it surprising well I, I guess that's it's the old argument of do you listen some people listen to you know there, there's bands that, that I listen to that I don't particularly pay attention to the lyrics that if it's you know if it's not I find their lyrics not that strong but I think if I guess I, I, I'm going from a biased point of view I, I couldn't listen to the Manics without taking in what the messages are but that's yeah. just me because I've been a fan for over 20 years and my politics lies in the same area as yours. So I see it more, maybe. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, maybe maybe they, they got into love of Richard Nixon and they were like, all oh, right, that's what they're about. <laughs> Which is a great song, by the way. It's a brilliant song, brilliant bass. I mean, I'm a big fan of sort of uh, crowd rock and I'm a big fan of uh, electronica. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an absolutely amazing song. <laughs> Do you you think, um, how much was the price of this uh, remaster? It was about 50 odd pounds, wasn't it? Right, well, I mean, I know that I spent somewhere in the region of 90 quid because I I did the full shebang, you know, the the, the vinyl, the the book, the t-shirt, because I mean, I've I've got this thing where I've actually got a a separate bank account where um, I've got the direct debit set up. Offshore fund. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure. Like, uh, but yeah, it just basically it's because I know at some point the Manics are gonna, even though Nicky will come up with some lines, say, "Oh, I've got, I've got no more albums in me," and then two months later, one comes out. So I just need to know I've got some somewhere <laughs> hidden away, so I, I can just go right. Okay, you know, you're gonna milk me again, but fuck it. There you go. I have the ninety quid. Yeah, know? that's how I feel about <laughs> about gigs. It's just like, okay, that. They've announced another tour, right? Yeah, then <laughs> off, off, off the bank account goes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, um, I, I tend not to go on holidays. I think Manic's tours are my holiday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess a lot of it is an ex- expensive for what it is, I suppose. But I guess a lot of the money is because of the quality of the artwork. Uh, and that's the, that's the thing. I mean, you're completely right. I mean, like that that. A4 book, um, like the one with all the Mitch Keita photos and the um, the like the, the scanned lyrics and stuff. It's really glossy. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, like when um, even though I've already bought it, um, I actually got sent a, a copy of it um, ahead so I could do the review. And um, I was expecting. I mean, like obviously it says A4, but for some reason I just didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I, just... I think a lot of people didn't pick up on that. To be fair, because everyone's been surprised. Yeah, and I just thought it was going to be another book to, you know, like go alongside all the ones that done since Journal for Plague Lovers, which would have been fantastic, and I would have loved it. But it's absolutely gorgeous, and I mean, even if you weren't a Manix fan, and if you were to be somebody who seems to have a gorgeous coffee table and leaves books on them, which apparently I'm told people do, and uh, so you know, if, if it was left out, and you were to read it or well, look through it. I'm sure that, you know, like, even if you're not a Manix fan, you'd still find it visually striking and gorgeous and, and brilliant to look at. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a reissue, uh, remaster rather for for the purists, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I, I, I think I said at the end of the review, I'd be very surprised if anybody who wasn't a diehard Manix fan would buy it. But equally, if if someone was just to pick up that book and flick through it, I, I think they'd be pretty impressed by the quality not so just how amazing they looked at i mean simon price once uh, sort of slagged off the panics of this period saying like just you know around then they were wearing a bit of brown too much and there was a few too many waistcoats which you know i, I could i could see that criticism but actually if you look at them some of their, their outfits they were just absolutely cool and sophisticated and really really striking like the the pinstripe suits i'm always a sucker for and uh I think I think they looked amazing this 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 era because the I mean what were they about 23 24 and they just looked like natural rock stars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean like uh I guess it's that time when um, the 90s had really really sort of taken hold and they looked like the definitive definitive image of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um okay, before we wrap up, I'm going to put you right on the spot now. To play out, um, I'll play a song. What is your favourite Manic song? What, of all time? Yep. Well, and you've got ten seconds to decide. Well, my favourite song of all time was Faster, but I would far rather that you ended with Sorrow 16, please. Sorrow 16, that's a great choice. I will play Sorrow 16. Thank you very much. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Thank you very much. In the week, longtime Manix collaborator Kieran Evans released a video on YouTube called Pieces of Sleep. Essentially, it is uh, old footage, tour footage of a Japanese tour in the autumn of 1993, all collaborated together into a short movie. Um, what did you think initially? I enjoyed it. I prefer his Holy Bible film. I'm not going to lie. Um, I don't know I don't know why I just did um, but I did like it I I was slightly you as a fellow Manix fan can probably answer this for me the the Japanese dialogue 
the lady talking, is she specifically talking about the Mannix tour? It's a fictionalised account of someone who is probably in their 40s or 50s now, look, looking back on, on no tour. Some, someone, who, someone who went to every date of that Japanese tour. Because there were points where I was like, is this a work of fiction? Is this just like, is, she, is this something that they found and have gone, this fits the mood, let's use it. And then she would suddenly talk about the venue. We arrived at the venue and I was like, oh, well, this is very specific to what I'm watching. So I don't know whether, like, I, I don't know, maybe that coloured it for me a little bit in a strange way because I just was like, this could be really beautiful. But at the same time, it feels slightly forced. I went into it knowing that it was a fictionalised account. Uh, see, I, di- I, I deliberately didn't read anything about it, didn't hear anything about it. I was like, I'm just going to watch it and see what I think. Yeah, this t- to me, which I'm surprised, and th- this to me feels like something that could have been included in the, the Gats reissue. I'm surprised it wasn't. I'm very surprised that this isn't you know something that you like there's a dvd as well as a cd because it it just seems like a very natural thing to do to have that um i did enjoy it and it was lovely to see i like i some of that footage it was nice to sort of see the elongated version you know there's bits of that video like richie eating the the petal of the rose um i'm sure that's in that video somebody will correct me and go yes from this better wear actually but you know (laughs) Um, I think it's life becoming a landslide and so it was really nice to see that like the the full footage from that um and I like the live footage it's always nice to see early manics when they're like proper like almost nihilistic about it like we're gonna sing it you know you know (laughs) that um was interesting we've literally just had an episode where we're talking about discussed a lot about the production of postcards from a young man and how it's you know, some a lot of people say it's overproduced and overpolished. You've got to think this is like a few months after Gold Against the Soul was released. Listen to that album and see those live performances. Look at the stark contrast. And I'd even say it for Generation Terrace, even though Ger- Generation Terrace on record is more punky than Gold Against the Soul, it's still quite clean sounding. And even even the Generation Terrace era, they were in your face and loud and and punk rock. It's so, it's, you could listen to go, Life Becoming a Landslide on record and then you hear that version, you think, well, that's, that's a different band. Watching that live footage, I just found that really exciting. There's and and for me, there's always been not so much like two bands, but there's a side to the Manics where they're very, you know, 
thrashy and we're just going to do this and who gives a shit, you know, and we're going to be loud and in your face. And then there's a side that I think do take their music quite seriously and are quite deep and thoughtful and, you know, um, here's some lyrics and it's about something incredibly deep that no other band would ever talk about. Um, and I like that sort of juxtaposition, especially with Life Becoming a Landslide is one of my favourite songs um, from Gold Against the Soul. So it's really interesting for me because I love the recorded version to then hear the way they did it live and it was just so like, Rah! and <laughs> there's such a difference. And I found that really fascinating. At first, it's quite uneasy, the difference between them being punk rock and angry and energetic on stage and these really small, sweaty gigs. So the, the very small sections of her, like, reminiscing, and it's, it's clashing. And I really liked that, and it was, it was quite romantic. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, de I definitely got that sort of sense of nostalgia and that melancholy as well. And I thought, um, now I know it's fictionalised... A fictionalised account. I'll put my teeth back in. Um, it makes more sense to me, but I like the the fact that they was sort of like, well, you know, we probably won't ever have anything like this again, but we've got the memories, especially, and I don't want to be this person, but especially given that you're talking about a time when Richie was still with the band, you know, you can't avoid, it's kind of inescapable, you're going to make that connection that, no, they'll never have that time again because one of them isn't there anymore, um, you know. Yeah, two things on that. Firstly, it it was nice to see Richie be a human, smiling, being part of the band on tour that wasn't about his self-abuse or wasn't about his alcoholism. It was, you know, he was talking about things like Europe, which was obviously put in to to feel quite relevant. And it's, it's nice to see that side because that's who he was. I know there was, people call it the cult of Richie around that time, but... It was just nice to see him smiling and being part of that band. Yeah, I think my absolute favourite bit, I think probably aside from the like live music, which is always excellent to see, but of all the sort of footage that I hadn't seen before, my favourite thing was seeing them at the arcade where there's like James on the motorbike really seriously, <laughs> like, I'm going to beat my high score. You can see he's thinking, and Richie's there. And I just think it's so nice to sort of get that glimpse into the fact that we're just like a bunch of mates who'd never gone particularly far and suddenly they're in Japan, you know, and that you could just hanging out with their best friends, doing stuff that you know lads of that age would have wanted to do going to the arcade and just hanging out and that's it you you people do sort of romanticize this and then richie would like drink a bottle of vodka and stub cigarettes into his arm and actually just seeing sometimes he hung out with his mates and went to arcades you know i really like to see that and um and that for me was probably the most poignant bit of the whole documentary yeah, absolutely. And, and there's another thing. Don't, don't they all look fucking incredible? Oh my God, yes. I. They all look on point. Richie looks stunning. And oh, that's another thing, just watching it. Like, James absolutely shredding it. I don't like the way they back him up too much. And... I'm so glad you said that because I was watching it and I was like, this is so cool because... I can hear James. I can hear exactly what he's doing on his guitar. There's no, bless his heart, Richie. <laughs> there's, you know, there's no, um, you know, really prominent backing guitar. Sorry. Um, and, and no sort of mass keyboards or anything that's like 
overshadowing. I could just hear that James is freaking loving life. Just like, yes, I'm going to play this riff right now and I'm going to mess about with it. And I, it was such a different sound to, to what you get at Manix Gigs now. Yeah, it made me, because I first saw them in 1998, and this is my truth talk, but it, um, it was amazing, don't get me wrong, but it made me wish I was that slight bit older, so then I could have gone and seen them in a, in a sweaty little club, and with that with that full-on noise. I, I would love to go, but I have always said, if I had a time machine, I'd mostly use it for music. <laughs> I'd mostly go to gigs, and I'd want to see the Manics in every era. Yes, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I really enjoyed it because I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know if they were going to show full songs. It's so lovingly created. And I think Kieran Evans and the Mannix, because they've been working together for a few years, I just think they're a perfect fit. He, he, to- he totally understands them. He totally gets what they're about. I think that's really true. I, I think I said this about... Didn't we go and see the Holy Bible one together? Yeah, we did, yeah. I was going to say. Um, but yeah, when when I watched that, I think I said this then, and I thought it at the end of um, watching The Gold Against the Soul one, is you can tell it was made by a fan. It's just got that, that aura of, God, I love this band, and I want to put on screen all the reasons I love this band and why I love this band. And I definitely got that. Yeah, I think it's probably unfair to to compare it. It is, isn't it? It's like a little glance back to to an era that you know is is a hell of a long time ago now. When you think about it, the closing statement, which I can't quite remember now, along the lines of "I wish I could dive back into those memories. I wish I could experience all that again." Almost taps into where we are now. I know we've only been like three three gigs without being able to three months without being able to go to gigs. That that I have that I have that feeling of like oh, I wish I could go to a gig now and I wish I could feel that energy. So I think probably intentionally Kieran has tapped into that as well. I think so. I think there's a definite, and not just even about gigs. When you think about it, like for a lot of us, especially those of us who are shielding and things like that, it's not just about gigs. I mean, I really miss gigs, but it's things like I just want to go out and have. A coffee and a bit of cake with some friends you know I want to like go back out into the world and at the moment we can't do any of that so everything is I'm nostalgic about everything and I think there was a real element of we're all nostalgic for life as it was do you know what I mean yeah I, I don't know whether the narration is saying because I'm 40 50 whatever the woman is supposed to be I can't experience that as I did when I was 15, 16 or whatever, or whether it's saying we can't experience the manics as they were back then. I hope it's the second, because um, from my perspective as somebody who's 38 this year, next time I go and see the manics, I will be jumping up and down and shouting and doing shouty pointy just as much as I did 10, 15 years ago. So... (laughs) I'd like to I'd like to think it's not about an age thing. I'd like to think it's more, you know, that's a time in history that you can't recapture because it's happened. Um and what you know, we were talking about um sharing past present future tours memories and I think there's there's that element of when you've been somewhere 
um, specifically in this case musically like a tour even though you could go to another tour you're never going to have that gig experience with those people necessarily that you went with it's, you're not, never going to have the same day because you're going to meet different people in the queue or you're getting you know different things are going to happen to you so I think if if something holds a really precious memory for you I think um it's always going to be a little bit of a well that was amazing and that's not going to happen again even if I go to another tour and I see the same band and they play a lot of the same songs it's not you know no two experiences are ever going to be exactly the same so I think for me I just felt like it was more of a I'm nostalgic for that particular event in history that is why I think this was almost chucked out I don't want to say chucked out as a thing on YouTube here's a little snapshot of history right now for, for you to you know if you went to if you saw the band around that time this is what it was like if you didn't this is what it was like <laughs> yeah yeah and I like the fact with with that whole like snapshot thing a lot of the footage you like you didn't have much where the camera was on them and they were literally talking to the camera like well today we're in this city and we're gonna go and play at this venue it was just them chatting amongst themselves and little snippets of them walking along and things so that really added to the whole this is just a snapshot in time vibe i wish kieran had directed the nine x gig because every time you watch that it ruins the flow because there's a like a two or three minute interview between certain songs and you're like no stop it takes you out of it doesn't it yeah it takes you out of it and he, he gets the flow of it even though there is someone narrating it they're still showing you footage of what's going on on stage そして、あなたの世界を飲み込む。それは一瞬のうちに大きな波となって、コンサートを終え、新鮮な空気の中で、体から湯気が立ち上り、思考は停止し、話すこともままならず、夢の中を浮遊する。now it's time to talk about this episode's B-side, Red Rubber. Red Rubber is a B-side to Some Kind of Nothingness and was released on 6th of December 2010. Emma, did it get your rubber ball bouncing? <laughs> it did get my rubber ball bouncing and I shall tell you for why. Um, I, I like the fact that with this song you think you're getting one thing and then you end up with something completely different. And I particularly like it when a song does that, when it has an intro that makes you go, oh, it's going to be like this. And then suddenly there's a, a either a chorus or just a change of tempo at some point in the song that makes you go, oh, 
well I wasn't expecting that and that's what this song does I the intro to this always makes me feel like I'm about to watch a western there's just a very western movie vibe and then you know the, the verses and then I just love because it kicks into that chorus and it's all high energy and there's the multi layering and the harmonies of James and it sounds like a whole group that are just chanting and are like basically metaphorically grabbing you by the shoulders and giving you a shake and being like listen to me and I really love that and then it goes back and then you know you're back to the western vibes and then suddenly back to this this sh almost shouty chorus um so I do like I really like uh, juxtaposition is my word of this podcast because I keep saying it but I do like the juxtaposition <laughs> between the intro and the verses and the chorus the one thing I would say um not so much bugs me about this song but is I think a shame is that for me it just sort of ends if you say the western bit is one and the chorus is two it's a bit one two one two end and it would be nice if there was a unexpected three <laughs> it's definitely definitely too short it's strange that this is a b-side to some kind of nothingness yeah i wouldn't put those two together like you say it's got this spaghetti western kind of vibe and then the chorus kicks in and goes i think of that when i hear that chorus i think of something like green day white king red rubber black death and, and this bit are you listening that to me i can hear B billy joe armstrong are you this dig <laughs> My Billy Joe Armstrong is is very well known. Um, I can't remember the tune now. <laughs> Can I just do something else by Green Day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just sing Basket Case. Go for it. <laughs> do you have the time to listen to me? Why? <laughs> I am available for weddings, bar mitzvahs, and funerals. Though I think this is a really fun, like upbeat quite joyful kind of song even though it's too short but but i did a google did you did you find out what it's about unlike a certain someone i don't have a politics degree um yeah do you know what a red rubber is enlighten me it's a catheter made of latex <laughs> oh my word so so i looked again red rubber there's a book about this called The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade, which flourished in the Congo for 20 years, 1890 to 1910. It's a, it's a catchy title. There's a documentary, I think, that they borrowed the words for the chorus from. There is a... I think Nicky's got it from the documentary more than anything. Leopold, who is mentioned in the song, came to the Belgian throne in 1865 and reigned for 44 years. Uh, this was he was the founder of the and sole owner of the Congo Free State. He extracted a fortune from the territory, initially by the collection of ivory, and after a rising price of rubber in the in the eighteen nineties by forced labour of the native population to harvest and process rubber. But it gets bleak. His administration of the Congo was characterised by murder, torture, and atrocities. Millions of the Congolese people died. Estimates are around 10 million deaths. 
This has become known as the Hidden Holocaust. So that really happy song that I've listened to for quite a few years. <laughs> but you see, it's as, you know, as upsetting as that is. Like, I'm not trivialising that. Obviously, that's freaking atrocious. But I, I kind of love the fact that I can't think of any other band other than the Manics who would go, hey, let's write a song about Leopold II's colonisation of Central Africa. <laughs> Yeah, and let's let, let's chuck it in as a B-side. Yeah, and let's make it sound like a Western, but then have this really upbeat chorus. Let's have this glam punk chorus. Yeah. I just, I can't think of another band that would go, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, yeah, we're just, let's get in the studio. Let's write, let's write that. I That's, and, you know, I, but look at where we've said this before. You've you've done history research because of a manic song. You know, I love that about them. <laughs> the verses, here you go, the verses. I don't know what's what's taken from this, this documentary or not, but my idle ledgers have fiasco loss. Time to wake up kids in the of the Cold War. Some scars so deep that they'll never heal. Reparations pint glass unclean. Civilization takes up many forms, usually disguised and fatally flawed. I love that line. Yeah, I like that line. And this is the line about Leopold. Oh, Leopold, you betrayed our souls, sold the heart of your country for all the rubber and all the money. Mm. See, I've got a feeling um, that um, it's the chorus. I'm pretty sure there was a... A documentary, and I feel like the the documentary was called um, White King, Red Rubber, Black Death, or something like that, which is obviously in the chorus. I I don't know if, if it's in that order. <laughs> White King, Red Rubber, Death. Are you listening? Oh, I just I just love it. I just think it's a really fun. If you forget the the issue. That it's talking about a really fun like lively energetic song which i guess you wouldn't associate with them at that time because it's, it's the postcards era um what would you give this out of five because it's too short and because um it just sort of ends i went with three and a half out of five snap it is it's it's brilliant, but it just I just, when it when it finishes and fades out, you just go, no, I want more of that. Okay, I put this to Twitter. The poll five stars, twenty seven percent. Four stars, twenty five percent. Three stars, twenty seven percent. Two stars, twenty percent. This is very split, isn't it? So, five stars and three stars both have 27% and four stars have 25 What do we call it? I would say by the process of averages, four? Yes, I would say that as well. Yeah. That's a better score than I thought we'd get.
it's time for you know what it's time for baby Wow. I mean, you didn't even buy me dinner first. <laughs> I'm going to scroll. The finger is at work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, are we ready? Stop right now. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Dead passive. So I will put out a poll on Twitter again and we will in the next episode talk about Dead Passive. This week, James Dean Bradfield, do you know who he is? I've heard of him, but I don't know where from. Short guy, shouts a lot. Oh, I think I know who you mean. He's teased us with new material from his new album, Even in Exile. Um, He's released two songs. The first song, There'll Come a War. What are your initial reactions? The intro is dark and has an almost desolate vibe. I really love the piano and it feels, the the whole tone of the song feels very apt for the current time. I particularly like the fact that he sings can you see and can you feel etc in the verses because this is going to sound a little bit strange but I love lyrics like that because they make you feel like you're not just a passive listener, you're being asked to think about something or engage with the song. Um, The whole song is incredibly atmospheric. It's one of those songs that you listen to and can immediately imagine a music video in your head. I've got the same thing. It is incredibly atmospheric. We didn't know what to expect coming into this because we didn't know it was going to be acoustic or or anything like that. But this, I listened to it at five o'clock in the morning because I was awake and I just thought, oh, that new James song is out. So I, I listened to it. And yeah, it has got that really like almost film cinematic vibe to it yeah it's definitely got a cinematic quality it's it's i just found it very well we keep saying atmospheric but i did i found it really atmospheric and it's it uses the strings in the way that i'd wish the manics would use strings a bit more because generally when the manics use strings it's very upbeat and high but for a long time i thought it was going to be an instrumental and i was thinking come on james sing please sing i did well, I actually, I didn't write this down, but I, I, I put in my, well, in my head, I didn't put, I was thinking, is this an instrumental? This is like, this is a very long intro. I, but I liked that it was a long intro in a way. I think it builds mood. Once the vocals kicked in, I think it was worth it. I think it was worth the wait to build up the, the whole thing. Mm, it's very, very different to the Great Western. And I like that about it. To be honest, I wish the Manics would do something like this. Mm, I kept thinking that. I was like, this is not very Mannix. And I think it would suit them because it's James's voice at the end of the day. And it suits him. It's, it's, I just, I really liked it. We'll get onto it one day. Resistance and Futile, I'm not particularly keen on. And I think, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing this as a solo performer, I'd say generally by numbers Mannix songs on an album, I think 
there's room to experiment more with the Manics, especially now they've reached a stage in their career where they can, you know, they'll have a core base that will buy their stuff. And to me, that, that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this song. There is a lot of interesting stuff, but I am very intrigued to have a discussion about Resistance is Futile. I just want to clarify before we move on to the second song that uh, me saying it's very different to the Great Western and I like that about it does not mean I don't flip in a door the Great Western because I do. The Great Western is a great album. I haven't heard it for a while, but um, yeah, it is. It, it's nice that he is trying something different. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, th- I, I think um, there's there's something about James Dean Bradfield that he likes to push himself out of his comfort zone and try new... I think he's he's like a kid in a sweet shop when it comes to musical styles and musical genres, and I love that about him because <clears throat> he puts that into everything he does and it just makes it so interesting to listen to. We kind of knew there'd be like a bit of brass and stuff in there, but it's it's very interesting. And also maybe the words of Patrick have made him approach his, his music writing differently. With songs from bursting lungs Not death from guns To protect the sands To resurrect Where the rackets red Okay, the next song, which is an instrumental, which I was expecting vocals to kick in, is Seeking the Room with the Free Windows. There's two thirds in it. I'm desperate to know where that title comes from. Perhaps, perhaps he was just watching an episode of Homes Under the Hammer, and there was a couple that wanted a room with a, a room with free windows. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, I love a bit of Homes Under the Hammer. I really hope he was. Dion Dublin's playing drums on the song. Have you seen, I'm sorry, I know I'm going slightly off topic, have you seen the little video of Dion Doblin just constantly saying stairs that go up to the bedroom? <laughs> I love it. Yes, yes, I have. I mean, I think it lasts quite long. I think I dipped out quite early because I thought, I, I get the vibe now. It's so true, I'd never noticed it until I watch upstairs going up to your bedrooms. <laughs> now we need a new compilation. Room with free windows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start on this one. Um, to, it felt like a pretty standard Manic instrumental B-side, which is not a bad thing because I, I like that. Um, and it's lovely to hear James noodling. And that's that's a scientific term, noodling. See, it reminded me, I can't remember how you pronounce it, so I'm going to just use the brackets. You know, Dreaming a City? It reminded me a bit of that in the middle section. I will read you what my notes say. I've put, I really love the intro with the quick guitar. That's your noodling. (laughs) Especially when the bass joins in. Then the change in tempo when the guitars kick in makes this song feel a lot more manics than they'll come a war. 
The midsection has an arcade computer game vibe that I really like. Dreaming a City, if you've never listened to it and imagined yourself playing something like Sonic the Hedgehog or Mario, go and listen to it and imagine that, because I am telling you now, it is a computer arcade game piece of music, and I adore that about it. Um, it's very catchy, and I personally, with I think we've got a slightly different view on this, because I felt, as soon as it ended, I wanted to press play again. Not saying I disliked it, it probably didn't grab me as much as the first song, and... Yeah. It's definitely more classic what I would expect from either James Dean Bradfield or the Manics. And uh, yes, and I think because I know it's a collaboration with Patrick Jones, I was expecting even like if it's one or two sentences to creep in there and it didn't but i'm i'm more than happy just to listen to james play guitar that that's not if he released an instrumental album i'd buy it because he's an amazing guitarist but i love his voice as well so perhaps perhaps i was just expecting a little bit of vocals i think i was because I, I originally wrote, I love the intro with the quick guitar, and I was like, oh, okay. And then it, then the bass comes in, and it's it sort of slightly changes, and I'm like, ooh, it's exciting. And then when the guitars come in with, like, the, the big chords, I was like, this is where he's going to sing. And then he didn't. And I was a little bit like, where's where's the verse? I was waiting for the verse. But I do, but having said that, I, I, I do like it. I do think it works as is. Considering we didn't know what to expect, I think... These are two really strong songs that have come out and it, it makes me look forward, forward to the album even more now. Exciting. Summer, a summer gift for us all. We can listen to that and watch wankers go to Bournemouth. God, I thought you were going to say something else then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever you want to watch in the privacy of your own home. Before we go, I would just like to give a shout out to the Music Venues Trust and their Save Our Venues campaign. Uh, Towns and cities around the country need small independent venues. New artists need small independent venues. Uh, My personal fight in this cause is for the Exeter Cavern. As we were talking about earlier, coincidentally, it'd be devastating for Exeter and I think the southwest below Bristol if this venue was not any longer operating. I can't imagine Exeter without it. But there are so many venues that could go under around the country. And times are pretty tough for most people right now. 
But if you can afford anything to go towards save our venues, then I think it's such a valuable cause because the industry needs it. Well, I, I feel, um, I'm assuming most of this was paid with grant money, so they should be okay, but Truro Hall for Cornwall um, is our is the biggest venue, I think, down here in Cornwall. And um, they don't tend to get that many bands. It tends to be more sort of touring musicals and stand-ups and things like that. But I, they have been shut for like a couple of years because they've been doing this huge... Uh, refurb of it and I was thinking about it the other day and I was like well hang on a minute I'm sure they've got grant money that's covered this huge refurb but what's going to happen when it reopens they've just had this huge refurb they're probably going to have to be like well you have to change the way we have stuff you know where the seats are and things to cope with social distancing and that is a venue that is really precious to me because not only have I seen several stand-ups there and several musical theatre shows, we were we were literally just talking off air about my obsession with musical theatre. But um, several years ago, on I think it was a Send Away the Tigers tour, I when Sean Moore was a member of Forever Delayed and I was on Forever Delayed, I said to him multiple times please come to Cornwall please play Truro Hall for Cornwall please come to Cornwall and never thought oh no, you know, there's no way they're going to listen when I remember they released their tour dates fucking Truro Hall for Cornwall and I was like no you are shitting me never ever and I remember at the gig James Dean Bradfield was like we've never even fucking heard of this place <laughs> but we were suggested it so we came and I was like so yeah I like but even like smaller venues than that when you see a band in up close and personal in a small venue there is nothing like it and it would be just so devastating for music in the UK if we lost these smaller venues so it would be all all round just not just the 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 people who who run the venues it'd be just devastating for the people who are making music because they need they need somewhere to go not just that but for for music fans as well you know like the people that run the venues yes the people the the people that play the venues yes but people who go oh so and so are playing at such and such place shall we go you know it just that's such a part of the the cultural fabric of this nation and i just think it'd be absolutely devastating if we lost that exactly like the cavern's like a 10 15 minute walk from where i live and it's ranges from like five to 15 pound a ticket it's no it's not like it's not like the the same as spending 30 40 50 60 quid on a, on a big arena tour it's just like you know i can pop I can walk 10 minutes into town and then I'm there at a gig. It's an, that's an amazing thing and I think we could lose that. As uh, Pippa Rag, who runs the cavern, said in an in a Instagram post, I think it was this week, we, we're still paying high rent and we're not earning any money. And being open doesn't mean like selling a few coffees in the day. Being open means we need to put on gigs and shows and club nights and stuff. To, to to survive because they're not going to survive off selling a pasty or a cup of tea they're just not going to so it's really important that people put their money in where they can because everyone, everyone's struggling but where they can to try and keep these venues alive because they're the they're the we won't get the bands that we love now without these venues 
Absolutely. I mean, every, when you think of every band usually starts out playing these small venues and if you don't have that grounding, where do you go? Where, how do you grow from that? You know, so they are massively important. Donate what you can and support live music, essentially. Back onto our podcast. Um, I'm loving reading your stories, so keep them coming in about how you got into the Mannix. Uh, send that to manixspeaker at gmail.com. And we also want to hear from you about your past, present, future tour experiences. We've had a few, good few already and we want more. We'll be doing that soon. I'm excited to share my past, present, future tour stories. I mean, to be fair, I only went to one gig, so, you know, it's not going to take up a huge amount of time. Okay, so you can follow us on Twitter at MSP underscore pod. And we're also on Facebook because we have no soul. We are under Manic Street Speakers on Facebook. We don't have a YouTube channel. And we don't have an Instagram, but I will set up an Instagram because all the cool kids have got Instagram. Uh, Grinder. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not for us. Tinder, Snapchat, um, TikTok, Bebo. TikTok. Let's get a TikTok. Why did Why did I say it in that? Wow. Let's get a TikTok. I've gone full partridge. <laughs> What's that thing that was that? The site ended about two or three years ago and it's like literally short five, ten second videos. Oh, I'm honestly, I'm actually annoyed that I can't remember because I can remember making content on that very briefly. Literally just anything. I'd go for a walk with the dog. <laughs> Be like, I'm walking my dog. <laughs> you know me. I stick a camera in my face and I'm very happy. That sounds dodgy as hell. This has been a podcast in which everything is a euphemism. <laughs> anyway, back to the point. Find us on Bebo, MySpace. <laughs> on that note, Emma, do your thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I'm so sorry. <laughs> what? What you want? <laughs> okay. Whew. I'm fine. <laughs> okay. We love you one time. We love you two times. We love you three fucking times. Skippy, Skippy, fuck off. Hey! <laughs> That's one of my favourites. <laughs> Guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. But your kids are gonna love it.